All right, so I have the third session, which is post-millennialism, a third session of the various views. And I'm gonna try as best I can in the next 20 minutes or so to con convince as many of you as I can that post-millennial is at least a viable option. Okay? The, reason I, the reason I say that is because I have hardly ever met other post-millennialists. Uh, very few people hold this position. And there's really good reason for why that's the case. And I'll get into that a little bit uh, as I get into post-millennialism. So first, let me just explain the broad outline of the position. So you've already heard premillennialism. Premillennialism is the view that Christ comes before the millennial reign and his coming inaugurates the millennial reign. So that's still future to come. And right now we're living prior to the millennial kingdom. When Christ comes, he comes in judgment upon the world and he inaugurates the millennial kingdom. So Christ comes before the millennium. The amillennial view would hold that we are currently in the millennial kingdom. And that is why it's amillennial because it's not a literal thousand years. It is a period of time in which Christ reigns over the, over the earth, primarily spiritually through his church. The postmillennial view uh, is similar to the amillennial view in the sense that uh, postmills and amillennials would agree that Christ comes at the end of the millennial kingdom. An amill would say we're in the millennium now, Christ comes at the end of it, so they would say he comes post-millennium. Uh, but the more, let's say, narrow way that a post-millennial would view this kingdom is that the, the millennial kingdom gets increasingly better over this period of time in which Christ reigns over the world. And at the end of what uh, you heard Tim refer to as a golden age or some period of time of flourishing in the world, Christ will come at the end of that period. So Amils and Postmills would agree that Christ comes post the millennial kingdom. But a postmill would say, and that millennial kingdom is felt, real, and will be experienced by a broad majority of the world, not, not merely spiritually, but physically in the world. So that's a, a broad overview. Now, uh, postmillennialism used to be the dominant viewpoint of those who were the Puritans. So if you have ever read a Puritan paperback or heard of a guy named John Owen or Jonathan Edwards or any of these Puritans, George Whitfield, they were all post-millennial. And they, they imagine themselves to be living in, an, in a golden era through the revivals and through the discovery of the new world. And at the end of this golden era, Christ would return uh, and, and come into his millennial kingdom, which was being established through the preaching of the gospel. Uh, that was true until about the late 1800s, early 1900s, when what happened to postmillennialism was a, essentially a liberal takeover. So postmillennialism uh, was co-opted and the language of postmillennialism was taken by those who were liberal theologians to justify their involvement in the world, non-gospel preaching involvement in the world. So they would say, uh, Christ's millennial kingdom is coming, it's here, so therefore, rather than necessarily preaching the gospel, we should feed the sick, clothe the homeless, and, and make the kingdom happen upon earth. So postmillennialism is still a dominant viewpoint uh, in churches across the United States today. None of them would hold to things like the inerrancy of scripture or anything like that. In fact, uh, during the uh, last century, the reason many uh, premillennialists became, the reason premillennialism became the dominant viewpoint in America was because the premillennialists were all the conservative fundamentalists who held to the inerrancy of scripture. So you have guys like John MacArthur and uh, John Walverud and many dispensational premillennialists who used their hermeneutic as a defense for the literal interpretation of scripture 
And they did that over and against post-millennial liberal theologians who were saying, we can kind of take this text more loosely. That makes sense? That's just a little bit of a historical vantage point. Okay? So post-millennialism has fallen upon very hard times in recent years. Uh, and, um, but it, it has, let's say in the last 20 or 30 years, made somewhat of a comeback, mostly through scholarly work. So uh, many amillennials and many premillennials today would say that what happened to postmillennialism was actually good for postmillennialism because it kind of allowed postmillennialism to die out as a dominant viewpoint and reinvent itself or recreate itself as a, as a hermeneutically legitimate viewpoint as opposed to a, the world's getting better, technology's improving, we've discovered the new world, therefore the world's getting better. That makes sense? So postmillennialism had to justify itself not by a spirit of the age, but by a legitimate textual defense of its position. So men, men like Kenneth Gentry, uh, R.C. Sproul and some of his scholarly work, and, and others uh, moved to advance what's, what's called a postmillennial reading of the text of scripture. And they picked up in the Puritan era. So that's, the, that's the kind of the history of the background of that view. Um, again, we don't have time to get into all of the, the various texts. So I'll try to cover some of the texts that have already been covered and just let you see how postmillennial would read them differently than a premillennial or an amillennial might read those texts. So I'll start in Revelation, like we've, we've been there a couple of times now. But rather than starting all the way into Revelation 20, I want to start in Revelation chapter 1, kind of how Tim did. And Tim pointed out Revelation chapter 1 helps us in setting the scene for how we are to read the book. He said it's uh, revealed to us as a book of signs, symbols, pictures. And these signs and symbols point to alternate realities. I think Dave made mention of this as well. The dragon is not a little dragon. The dragon is a, is a symbol that points to uh, some other reality, in this case, uh, the devil. And I, I would agree with that, that reading of the text. Then, then the question becomes, and this is a really hard question, I think, to answer, but it's, it's one that leans me in the postmillennial, uh, toward the postmillennial view, is when is Revelation's time frame referring to? What time period is Revelation talking about? So this is in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1. I'm reading out of the ESV. It says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to show his servants the things which must soon take place. So this is a revelation, and it's a revelation of things which are soon to take place. Okay? And then if you look at verse 3, Blessed is one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Time is close. The time is quick at hand. So that's how Revelation starts and how Revelation closes. If you go to Revelation chapter 22, you'll hear that exact same language um, as the angel communicates to John about how he is to understand these things. So Revelation chapter 22, end of, end of the book. Revelation chapter 22, verse 6. And he, the angel, said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants that which must soon take place. Similarly, verse 7. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy in this book. And verse 10. Uh, he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. So you hear the language, soon, near, coming quickly, all that language. And this is something Dave pointed out, a difference between the premillennial view and the postmillennial view. 
uh, Dave men mentioned this kind of at the end of his time, is a question of when was the book of Revelation written? And if the Re book of Revelation was written before 70 AD, there's a legitimate scholarly opinion that all of the events referred to in Revelation are not future coming events to a destruction of a second temple and a second Jerusalem, but are all prophecies that refer to the destruction of the temple, which was soon to take place in 70 AD. So the early date of Revelation, the early date that scholars have argued for, like Kenneth Gentry, would be some, somewhere in the realm of 66 to 68 AD, Revelation was written. And so when it makes reference to things which are to soon take place, it's referring to things that are going to happen three, four years later, after those things are announced. Now this, uh, and, th and there's one thing that I think is really uh, critical to understanding that, and I, I read that verse at the end there, Revelation 22.10, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Now if you go to Daniel chapter 12, I agree with Dave and Tim, Daniel is heavily wrapped up in how you interpret Revelation. How you understand Daniel and the symbols there will heavily influence how you understand Revelation. Um, I, I think those, the prophecies are almost speaking uh, exactly about the same kinds of things. And many, many would agree with that. So Daniel chapter 12 is interesting because it makes reference to this sealing up of a prophecy. And uh, so if you look at Daniel chapter 12, and I believe it is verse, uh, get it here. Thank you, verse 4. But you, Daniel, so he, this is the angel talking to Daniel about things that are going to take place. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. And then if you glance down again at verse 9, he said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. So Daniel is, uh, you know, well before the time of Christ. Well before the time of Christ. And the angel says to Daniel, seal up the prophecy. It is not time yet. The prophecy is waiting for the time of the end. And in Revelation 22, the angel says to John, don't seal it up because the time is near. The distance between Daniel and Revelation is something like a 400-year span of time, roughly. So if in, if in Daniel, the angel says, seal it up for the time is far away to take place. It's not taking place yet. That's 400 years. It wouldn't make much sense in Revelation 22, when the angel says, the time is near, don't seal it up, for that still to be 2,000 years into the future and counting. That makes sense? So I think it, what's, what's referred to in Daniel chapter 12 is what's being referred to in Revelation 22. But in Revelation, the angel is explicit in saying, it's happening soon. It's on your doorstep. Now, I do this all the time. I'll text my wife something like, hey, I'll, I'll be there soon. And she's laughing because if you say soon and you don't mean soon, uh, people begin to doubt what on earth you mean when you say soon, right? I think, I think the angel is being clear and John is being clear that soon means soon, quickly means on the doorstep. And I think it uh, really undermines a reading of Revelation, a legitimate reading of Revelation to say, Revelation says soon, but soon doesn't mean quickly or about to take place. It means 2,000 years and counting into the future. Now that all hinges upon an early dating to Revelation. Because if you date Revelation prior to the destruction of Jerusalem, well, all of the prophecies can refer to the Jewish war, the destruction of the temple, the violation of the temple by Titus and Nero, the persecution of the Jews and the Christians under Nero and then later Titus, the complete wiping off the face of the earth, the temple, and the scattering of the Jewish people as a, as a national populace. 
uh, what Dave referred to as the, the two-thirds of the Jews being killed, all of those prophecies, I think, are legitimate, but I would say the timing would be very different. A, a post-millennialist would say those things really hinge on happening in the first century AD, in 70 AD. So the post-millennial view, I think, depends upon what's called a preterist reading of Revelation. That just means a, revel uh, a reading of Revelation that says Revelation is in the past. It is fulfilled already. That makes sense? And when I say not re Revelation, I mean the book of Revelation. So that's, that's one key text, one that we've looked at here. Um, and uh, Dave mentioned uh, Zechariah 13 and 14. Fair is fair. We'll wait till the Q&A to get into that one uh, because I think that there's a lot of good in that text, but uh, he didn't quite get there, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to restrain myself from going there. Um, there's one other thing I want to look at in Revelation that I think is a strong case for it dealing with the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And this is in Revelation chapter 17. Uh, and this uh, deals more so with the difference between the postmillennial and the amillennial view of Revelation, not so much the postmillennial and the premillennial view. So, Revelation 17 uh, describes this woman who's known as the great prostitute, uh, the whore of Babylon. You might uh, be familiar with that kind of language. And how most amillennialists would interpret this, this lady, this, this woman, is that she is the world system alluring Christians and the faithful away from Christ, away from faith in him. She's, she's alluring them away. She's worldly. But she's a, she's a pagan prostitute uh, who's, who's drawing the faithful out by sexual temptation and worldliness. Okay? But I think that the great prostitute referred to in Revelation 17 is actually referring to the Jewish nation at the time of John. So if you think about what happens to the great prostitute, she's this woman who rides upon the back of the beast. Um, she whores herself out to all the nations. And, in and what happens to her as a result is God judges her by allowing her to be given over to her, those who she has whored herself out towards. Now, all of that imagery seems strange, uh, kind of outlandish, but it has precedent in Ezekiel chapter 16, in which Ezekiel speaks of Christ, uh, of, of Yahweh's faithless bride. And he uses the term the prostitute as a type to refer to Israel, the one who prostitutes herself out to the nations, not being faithful to her God. And the result in Ezekiel 16 is a, production, is a prediction that what will God do? He will give her over to her lovers so that they will rip her to shreds. They will be the ones who judge her. Now, this is similar to what's typified in Hosea, where Gomer is faithless Israel. She's a prostitute. Uh, the, the prostitute imagery all over the text of Scripture refers to the faithful people of God who have broken covenant and gone after other gods. It's never uh, imagery that's referred to as an outside pagan world that's tempting and alluring the faithful. So, uh, now again, I say all that. If that's true, then in Revelation 17, when this prostitute is judged, uh, is, is likely tied in with the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. So you see how all of that works? Is uh, These prophecies are referring to Israel apostatizing and then being judged by God. Just like how in Ezekiel 16, Israel, when they prostitute themselves out, are judged by Babylon, the nation, as a punishment for their disobedience towards God. So I don't think it's out of, out of step with the text of Scripture to say the prostitute in Revelation 17 is, judged, is Israel being judged by Rome and their destruction in 70 AD. In fact, the Roman destruction, the Babylonian destruction, mirror one another quite strikingly. I think they symbolically or prophetically are very analogous towards one another. 
So those are, those are key texts. Um, there, there's one more text I want to look at as, a, as an argument for the, the postmillennial view. And this is really more not necessarily engaging with pre-mill or amill, but more so arguing where does a postmillennial see this hope, this picture of hope for the future. And for that, I'd like to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's another text we've been to yet tonight. And so because it's uncharted territory, I get the first stab at it. So 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is speaking about this hope that Christians have of the resurrection, which is yet to take place, the future bodily resurrection. This is the hope of all believers. Everyone agrees on that, pre-mill, amill, post-mill, all Christians agree, this is our hope. What's interesting in 1 Corinthians 15, particularly in verse 25, is that when Paul describes the reign of Christ, he describes it as, a, as an active reign. And what I mean by that is if you look, uh, for instance, uh, I'll start in verse 24. Uh, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Notice the use of the past tense there. When are things put in subjection under Christ's feet? He's crucified. He resurrects. He ascends to the right hand of God the Father and is there seated and reigns over the earth. And at, in his ascension, all things, not just the church, all things are put under his feet. And he reigns from heaven over the world, putting things under his feet. And the last enemies to be defeated is death. So uh, if you think about how the Amil and the Premil view the return of Christ, Christ comes back with sin essentially still active, uh, depending on how pessimistic that view kind of gets. Sin still hasn't been overthrown in, the, in those schemes. And Christ comes back, and the first thing that he does is put death to death. And then he also deals with everything else kind of at the same time. But what Paul seems to indicate here is that Christ reigns, and his reign is progressive over the earth, and the last domino to fall is death, meaning there's a kind of temporal separation between uh, the world being discipled, sin being enslaved, and ultimately death being put to death. And the postman would say, that's true. That happens with Christ's ascension and the gospel going forward and the Holy Spirit uh, enlivening the nations to see Christ. And as the gospel goes forward, the nations obey Christ, the nations begin to uh, render obedience to him. And the vision of the postmillennial future is that through the preaching of the gospel, through the mission of the church, the Great Commission succeeds and Christians begin to obey and love Christ. And Christians begin to cover the whole world such that the earth is considered Christianized. The earth is considered obeying Christ and Christ comes at the end of that period of time to finally put the last enemy to death, which is death. And this is how the postmillennial views it. So the final coming of Christ is not a coming in climactic judgment to put things right which are currently wrong, but he comes into his kingdom as it has been established by his people working through the preaching of the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we're in the millennial kingdom now, according to the postmillennial view, and things are getting better through the preaching of the gospel. That does not mean a linear uphill climb. Uh, it means ebb and flow, but the overall progression of history is improvement. Consider one statistic. Uh, there are currently 2.1 billion people on the earth who profess to be Christians. I'm not saying all of them are Christians. I think that there are some false professions within that. But 2.1 billion people on the earth who profess Christ. At the time of Jesus, when he's commissioning his apostles out to go and make disciples, there's only 400 million people 
on the earth. So there's four, almost five times as many professing Christians today as there were people alive on the earth in the time of Jesus. Now that's not a linear progress. You have lots of crusades that are happening. You have lots of destruction and death and martyrdom happening. But it is progress. It is advancement. It is growth through the power of the kingdom. And so this is kind of the vision that a postmillennial has of, of, the, of the earth. Um, I won't say much about Israel and the church. Tim kind of covered a little bit of the difference that I would have also with a premillennial dispensational on the view of Israel and the church. I would just refer you to the amillennial viewpoint there. Um, so where, where am I going with this? All viewpoints of the end have an eschatology. Every single one of you, whether you know it or not, you have an eschatology of how the world is going to end. And if you don't know what your eschatology is, uh, it's, you have a functional eschatology, which means you kind of live your life and how you make decisions becomes functionally what you believe about how things are going. I think it's the duty of Christians to make our eschatology align with the vision the Bible has of the future. The vision the Bible has of the kingdom's either growth or uh, decline, whether it's pre-mill, amill, or post-mill. But the challenge here tonight is to think biblically about how we view the future, not just think about the spirit of the age and what's going on today about how we view the future. Uh, if, a, if a news article comes out and tells you about this new advanced technology and you think, oh, now I'm post-mill, that's a totally wrong way to think about eschatology. Um, or, if, or if you read a news story and you see that you know, they're allowing this new uh, teaching in schools, they're, they're allowing this new uh, transgender ideology to go into the school system, and that means the world is in decline, well, you're just doing what Republicans do. You're just doing what Democrats do. You're just thinking about the world in terms of what I see is how the world is. Now, I challenge you to think about the world as Christ sees it, as the scriptures tell us to view the world. So you don't not read the newspaper to take your cues about how the, how the future is going to go. Okay, so I need to say something about the Achilles heels of, of my view. Uh, I think Dave was absolutely right on this. Um, the dominant current scholarly consensus is that Revelation was written after 70 AD. Uh, the late date, uh, r roughly between 93 and 95 AD for Revelation, is the dominant scholarly consensus today, mostly referring to external evidence of the book. Irenaeus and some other church fathers refer to John being exiled to Patmos after 70 AD and when the, when the Revelation was viewed sometime in the late 90s. If Revelation is dated late, I think postmillennialism falls apart at the seams because so much of Revelation deals with tribulation, distress, and destruction, and you just can't get a postmillennial view out of it if it's, if it's happening still to come in the future. Okay. So that, I think that's an Achilles heel. I think I would hope that more scholarly work is done in the work of Revelation to establish an early date. I'm sympathetic to an early date, but I, that's an Achilles heel of the postmillennial view, I think. I also think another danger, another Achilles heel, is many people today who advocate for postmillennialism, uh, they, they use it more as a vehicle to justify other activity that they want to do in the world, as opposed to having come to that conviction from Scripture. So uh, if, if you ever played t-ball growing up or, or wiffle ball or, or anything like that, uh, it's, a, it's a classic mistake for a child to make that they want to hit a home run, and what they do is they take their eye off the ball, and they swing as hard as they can, and they don't make contact. And I think a lot of Christians sometimes do that kind of thing when it comes to eschatology. We have this vision of how the world is to get better, the preaching of the gospel and the proclamation of the word of God through the nations. And Christians want that to happen so badly, they take our eye off the ball and say, let's co-opt systems and nations and powers of this world to make that thing happen. It's taking your eye off the ball, I think, 
And I, I think many Christians do that kind of thing uh, as a means of expedience, not, as a, not, not to actually obey Christ and what he has commanded us to do. So how do you guard against that Achilles heel? I would say uh, it's okay to be post-millennial. In fact, I would want many of you to be post-millennial. But you have to be so because Scripture teaches that and because you're obeying Christ in Scripture, not as a means to an end, which is so I can get my way in the school system, in politics, or in the world today. That makes sense? So those are, those are the Achilles heels of that view. Um, and that is all my time. So I'll, I'll end there, and we can go into some Q&A.